Good morning, Riverside. How are we doing today? It's good to see all of you and good to be here worshiping with you uh, together this morning. It's a joy to come together and, and sing and uh, just praise God. And uh, so it's a privilege that we get to do it in community. We get to come together. And um, it's one of the things that we're going to be thinking about uh, this morning. Uh, did you guys have a nice Thanksgiving? Was uh, it good in general? Yes? Generally good? You survived? You're here? I want you to think about, as, as we begin this morning, just kind of thinking about um, togetherness. Community, I want you to think about your ideal Thanksgiving. And so assuming that this past Thursday was not the ideal Thanksgiving, or maybe it was, maybe you can just remember it, but... Um, Think about the perfect Thanksgiving. If you were to just kind of visualize for a moment, um, think about what it would look like. Think about uh, what are the foods that would be there. What are some of the activities uh, that you would do? Think about who would be sitting around the table. Just take a moment to kind of, kind of think about that. Put some people in the chairs around you. Think about what that would look like. And so my hope is, is, is if you, if you kind of have that image in your mind, that you're not picturing yourself like sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon by yourself with a turkey leg, just kind of chowing on it, right? Like, my hope is, is that your vision of an ideal Thanksgiving involves community. It involves coming together, right? That, that, that there should be something in, in, our, in, in us that, that desires that sort of communal relationship. And certainly in the church, that should be our desire. There can be times when we emphasize the individual aspect of our personal relationship with Jesus so much that sometimes we can lose sight of the fact that it's meant to be lived out in community with one another, that we're meant to come together and be in community, and that we're better together than we are apart. The, the band up here, trust me, if it was just me up here playing the guitar by myself and singing, it would be far inferior uh, to when we have all nine of us up here on stage together, right? Every, every piece adds something into it, and that's that's how church is meant to be as well. And so as we conclude, we've been studying through the, the letter to the Colossians uh, that Paul wrote. And you can turn there, Colossians chapter 4 is where we'll be today. We've been 12 weeks going through this letter and just breaking it down and kind of trying to understand what Paul was teaching and showing us. And he ends it uh, with, this, with this call to fellowship. And so let's, uh, let's pray, let's prepare our hearts as we begin to, to enter in today. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to draw near to you, to come into your presence, uh, to seek your face and we thank you that we get to do it together, God, that we, we could be doing this alone. We could be studying your, your word alone, and there's times and there's places and there's seasons for that. But, but it is a privilege to be able to come together and to, to learn more and to do more together than we could on our own. And so I just pray that as we come to your word, that it will teach and instruct our hearts today, that we will be challenged, and that it will move us into, into action. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you've, uh, if you've turned there, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. And uh, how many of you guys, uh, did any of you guys watch uh, White Christmas as part of your Christmas Thanksgiving tradition? Anybody watch that movie, or am I, we're the only throwbacks here? There's, all right, there's a couple. Timid hands, like, because uh, you're afraid I'm going to ask you to come up and sing Sisters or something, right? But there's a scene in that where the... Um, there's an old general, he's retired, and he's, uh, things aren't really working out for him as an innkeeper, and so he's written a letter to one of his buddies to try and get back into the army, and, and so he gets the letter that comes back to him, and, and he's reading it to him, and they're basically like saying, hey, you old, you old buzzard, like, that's hilarious that you want to get back in, no, you're lucky, you're retired, and, and he takes it to, to, to mean that there's not a place for him in the military anymore, and then so he's reading through the letter, and then he gets down to, hey, my wife is doing this, and he's like, oh, that's enough, you don't have to read anymore, that's just, that's just personal stuff from there on. Um, and, 
and we could get that way with this letter to the Colossians. We could look at it and say, okay, we've gotten everything we could out of this letter. The final couple paragraphs are just some personal stuff. It's personal greetings. It doesn't really have any application to our life. But my hope is that we'll come to it today and we'll see that uh, the stuff that happens in those little personal greetings, those little interpersonal relationships is where we get to see whether Paul is actually practicing what he's preaching. Is he living out what he's been proclaiming in this letter? And we see some evidence of that when we look at how he writes and speaks to the people that he's in relationship with. And so let's take a look at it. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 7. It says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, one who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church at Laodiceans and see that they also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So that's how the letter ends. And, uh, and, and we see a lot of personal connection. And, and so one of the powerful things to see here is that, that this is inspired scripture, right? That, that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. And it's full of, of God's very words, his instructions to the church. And it was meant to be passed around. He says, when you've read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea and, and, and make sure that you get to read the letter that I sent to them. And so he intended it to be a wider instruction for the church as a whole. But we also see in here by these personal remarks that it was also a letter that was written to a very specific people in a specific place and a specific time. And, and that it was written uh, to these people that he's calling out by name. And sometimes we can look at scripture and we think of it as just kind of this high level thing, but it doesn't drill all the way down into our hearts and our life situations. But, but what we see here is a reminder that this was written to very specific people in a variety of very different situations that are struggling to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus in the context that I'm in. And so in that sense, it's very similar to us, right? We're here in, in 2016 trying to say, what does it mean to follow Jesus in Hapro or Horsham or Willow Grove or Warrington or wherever you, you live? What does it mean to do it in my workplace? What does it mean to, to live for Jesus in this day and age? And so the questions that we're asking are the exact same ones that these were asking. And the letter is still relevant uh, to our hearts. And so I want to look at three things. He uses this word fellow several times in here. It's actually, in Greek, they take the prefix S-Y-N and add it on to the word. And so we talked two weeks ago about doulos means bondservant or servant or slave. And so when you add S-Y-N, it becomes soon doulos, and it becomes fellow servant, fellow slave, fellow bondservant. And so by adding this little prefix on the end of several of these words, he calls people out as his fellow servants, as his fellow workers, as his fellow prisoners. And there's this fellowship that's going on 
And Paul relates to people in different, different ways and different categories. And so there's three kind of broad senses that I want to look at. It. One, and, and it's stuff that, that I think God has been speaking to my heart and he's been speaking to our church. And so I, I think we should take this and, and try and seek to apply it. Uh, this is one of those sermons that, that hits the church. It hits us as individuals, but it, but it hits us as a church, right? Uh, the first thing that we see that, that, uh, that the fellowship is meant to encompass a diversity in unity, right? That there's diverse people performing distinct roles and tasks, but there's a unity that we're all doing it together in the church. The second thing we'll look at is the, the struggle that takes place in prayer, this fellowship of, of serving in prayer, of working in prayer, and the importance of that, that that's where the struggle takes place. And then the third thing is this, this fellowship of perspective, this understanding that he's writing this letter and encouraging people to look above and 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 they might say, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say, but he says at the end, remember my chains. <laughs> he was writing this with shackles on his hands, this glorious letter that says, look at Jesus, look how amazing he is. And he's writing it from a prison cell with shackles on his hands. So there's perspective, there's prayer, and there's this unity and diversity in the, in the body. And so let's look at the unity and diversity first. Let's look at the, the specific examples that he gives us here. There's all these people that are listed off, and we know a lot about some of them historically, some of them we know next to nothing about. But in this group, there's, there's people who are messengers, there's preachers, there's servants, there's prisoners, there's slaves, there's doctors, there's authors, there's the hosts of home churches, there's church planters, there's evangelists, some are Jews, some are Greeks, some are Asian, some are men, some are women. There's an incredible diversity in the people that he writes to, and yet he calls them all my fellow servants, my fellow workers, and even my fellow prisoners. This guy Tychicus, who we, who we um, probably aren't really that familiar with, but he actually shows up in the Bible quite a bit. He's mentioned in Acts when Paul met him the, for the first time. He's also mentioned in the letter to the, F, to the Ephesians, and, uh, and he's mentioned in the letter to Timothy, and he's mentioned in the letter to Titus. And so this was a guy that was working really closely with Paul. He was trusted to carry this letter. Think about this. Paul wrote this word, this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit that was uh, to become scripture, and he entrusted it into his hands, and he said, hey, here's the only copy of this. <laughs> Take this and deliver it to the people that I've written it to. That's a, that's a high burden, and so he's, he's trusted with this incredible duty, and so he's not just a messenger, right? This is uh, like the book of Eli. You guys remember that movie, the book of Eli, <laughs> with Denzel Washington, and he was, uh, this is a uh, spoiler alert, but uh, <laughs> he had the Bible, right? He had the last copy of Scripture, and he was, he was entrusted with that, and he was to protect it with his life. And that's what we think about Tychicus. That's the, the kind of value that, that he was given this letter that was the very word of God for the church, and he was to deliver it to them. What a powerful thing, right? Along with him was going Onesimus, who we also know a good bit about from the book of Philemon, uh, that Onesimus was a slave, and, uh, and his master was this man, Philemon, who was a part of the Colossian church. And we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, the differences between uh, slavery at that time and, and our ideas of Western slavery and how they're different, and bond servants, and, and that there was a much different understanding maybe than what you might be thinking. But, um, but Paul writes to Philemon, and he encourages him, hey, Onesimus ran away from you, maybe even stole some things from you, but when he came here, he met me, and through me, he met Jesus. And he's a different person than the one that left you. And I now welcome him as a brother. And he's very faithful and he is incredibly valuable to me. But I'm not going to keep him here. I'm going to return him to you. And I'm going to ask that you would consider forgiving him. And I'm going to ask that you would view him in the same way that I do as a useful brother in the church. And so it's this powerful call uh, to Philemon to forgo his rights as a, as a slave owner 
and to release Onesimus to the service of the church. And so, so we know a good bit about Onesimus. And think about for him the, the fear that he must have felt being given this letter and saying, hey, I'm going to send you back to your hometown, and you've got some baggage back there. <laughs> you left uh, yeah, in a really bad way, and now you're going to have to go back, and you're going to have to make things right. And you have to be okay with whatever God allows to unfold in that situation. And that's how it is in our lives, right? That when we come to Jesus, we receive forgiveness that he offers. He says, I will remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. That when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the forgiveness that was purchased at the cross, placed upon us so that he no longer sees our sin. But in this life, our sin has, has costs. It has uh, has has uh, baggage that it leaves. And so sometimes part of that healing process, even though we know that we are forgiven and redeemed in the eyes of Jesus, is going and making things right with the people that we've wronged and we've harmed through our sin. And Onesimus was setting out this journey to do just that. There's several others here. Aristarchus, who was a fellow prisoner. He was probably in chains for preaching and proclaiming the gospel just like Paul was. Uh, there was Mark, who had traveled with Paul at different times. And if you remember, at one point he left them. And then when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, Mark, along with them on another journey, it actually caused a, a rift between Paul and Barnabas because they couldn't agree because Barnabas wanted to forgive and take him along. And Paul said, no, he abandoned us. We can't take him with it, right? And so, so now we're seeing the beginnings of this healing process taking where Paul is forgiving Mark. And he says, hey, this is, a, this is a fellow servant. When he comes, I want you to welcome him. Right? They're real people. It's, it's not just a list of names, just random, like, hey, remember this guy and that guy, right? They, these are real people, and a lot of them have, like, messed up junk in their lives that they've got to get over. So it's, it's, it's kind of similar to us, right? At least us up on the stage here. Um, there's Jesus, who was called Justice. We don't really know much about him other than the fact that he was Jewish. There was Epaphras, who we learned a lot about earlier in this letter, that Epaphras had heard Paul proclaim the gospel, and then he took it to his hometown, and he planted a church, and he shared the gospel, and a church grew, not just there, but in the surrounding towns. This guy was amazing. And then when, when false teachers came in and tried to corrupt the gospel, he went to Paul himself, and he said, I, I love this church, and I've shared with them the good news that you shared with me, and I need you to reaffirm that the gospel that I shared with them is the true gospel, and there is no other. And Paul says, yes, you are a good and faithful servant. You conveyed the message properly. And he affirms Epaphras in the work that he had done. There's Luke who's mentioned, the, the doctor, the physician, who also is the one who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. A huge portion of our New Testament was written uh, by this doctor, Luke. There's Demas, who, who we find out in 2 Timothy is with Paul at this time, but then later it says that he fell in love with this present world and he abandoned Paul in his ministry. And so there's one that's with him now that he's commending that, that will fall away. There's Nympha, who was a woman, probably a wealthy woman, who hosted the, the Laodicean church in her home. And Paul greets her and says, thank you for opening your home to the church. Thank you for, for supporting the work of ministry. And, and to Archippus, who was most likely Philemon's son, he gives him this, this, uh, this command that I'm sure that he understood. He said, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. We don't know what that ministry was, but I'm sure that that was a powerful word to Archippus when he received that, right? That Paul took the time in this letter to write that to him. And so we see all this diversity and people serving in all these different ways. And, and Paul doesn't say, hey, listen, if you, if you do what you're supposed to do, then you're going to end up exactly where I am. You're going to be a church planner who goes around and ultimately you're going to end up in prison uh, for your proclaiming of the gospel. No. Paul recognizes that there's diversity of callings, there's diversity of roles, there's diversity of abilities. And so some people were hosting churches in their homes. Some people were messenger carriers. Some people were writing down the history and recording what was going on. And Paul celebrates that, that ministry. 
Paul had no illusion that he was a one-man show just kind of doing it himself. And at, and at Riverside, we celebrate this ethic. We celebrate the diversity of ministry. We recognize that, that, that biblically the call for the elders and pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we are best as a church when we are ministering together. And as I look around this room, I see lots of different giftings for ministry. There's some that, that do counseling. There's some that, that do work with their hands. They do acts of service. There's, there's some that, that, that work for the benefit of, of the poor and feeding those that, are, uh, that don't have food to eat, right? There's some that come in and work behind the scenes in ways that you would never see on Sunday morning so that you have a comfortable place to come and to worship Jesus. There's, I never even set foot in the, the education wing this morning, right? But there's, there's teachers and there's people down there making sure that all of our kids are, are comfortable and safe and that they're learning about Jesus. There's discipleship groups that, that meet up all throughout uh, the community. There's small group leaders that, that are leading and that they're raising up other leaders. And the more that that happens, the better it is. As we got together with family this past, uh, uh, this past week for Thanksgiving, um, you know, uh, I think uh, a lot of my extended family doesn't really understand what it means to be a pastor. or They're, they're not really sure what I do. They still ask if it's a, my full-time job, and, and they're not really sure, you know. And, uh, and so my uncle's like, so how, are, how are things at church? Like, how do you even measure how things are at church? Like, I don't know, is it attendance or what is it? And I was like, well, you know, a lot of people measure attendance or giving or those sort of things. But I was like, honestly, I'm really excited about what's going on because I see our core growing. I see the people that are invested in the work of ministry that God's called us to do in this community growing and increasing. We have more small group leaders. We have more people serving in ministry. We have more people looking and saying, hey, here's an opportunity to serve in the community. Uh, just two weeks ago, we had uh, two guys just take it upon themselves to go up to the Transformation Life Center in New York and go up and, and, and preach um, at the chapel up there and uh, put together a work crew and do a service project there. Earlier this, uh, a couple months ago, we had a, a group that went and uh, built a greenhouse uh, for a food shelter in Atlantic City. We had feast that just fed uh, meals to over 1,000 people this past Thanksgiving, right? So there's, there's all this ministry that's just spiderwebbing out. Um, that honestly is well outside of the control of the church, and that's a good thing. That's what we want. We want to equip you to do the work of ministry and then celebrate what God is doing in all of us. Uh, we, we, we model this on, on stage, right? Throughout this series, I think we've had four or five different voices up here sharing from the book of Colossians and from the unique perspective that God has blessed each different speaker with in looking at his word and sharing it through their experience, through their lens, through their personality. And that makes us stronger as a church. We're not a church that's built on any one person's uh, strengths or, or talents or, or, or abilities. And, and I'm confident that if, I, if something were to happen to me today, that Riverside would go on and thrive. And you'd probably even be better in my, in my memory, right? You'd be like, remember Ezra! <laughs> Rally it up, right? That's what you want, right? You, I mean, the, the worst thing that I could ever think of is if, if somehow I left or was removed or whatever and the church fell apart, then I would have completely failed as a minister, um, but that would never happen because this is Jesus' church. It's bigger than any one person. And the more that we serve together, um, the stronger we are. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Where is, where is God think, is causing you to think more about we than me? Particularly related to the church. Uh, when, when you come on Sunday morning, 
uh, is, your, is your focus, oh man, I hope the, the message is, I really need a good message. I hope the message speaks to me this week. I hope they play some songs that I like. I hope that donut that I like is down there. I hope I have a good parking spot. I hope that the, the theater, or the theater, the sanctuary is not too hot or too cold, right? Like I hope, I hope the right kid's worker is there because my kid only likes the one. And you know, right? Like if that's how you think about church, I want to encourage you to expand it to think about how do you move from me to we? How do you think about, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a part of a community this morning. And yeah, I've had a rough week, but, but man, I looked over there. That, that person looks like maybe they had a rougher week than me. And maybe I can go and encourage them. And by encouraging them, man, I'll feel like I'm being used by God. You know, how do I, how do I make sure that, that I'm here to minister, not just to be ministered to, to come with that focus of giving? Have you jumped into a role in the church yet? a role of a, in a small group or in a, in a ministry team or in some sort of outreach thing? Or is God gifting you in a unique way where you say, hey, you know, I've got this unique set of giftings. I want to kind of carve a new path. I don't think anybody's doing this, but I think God's equipped me to do it. Have you done that yet? Are you, are you connected? If not, I want to encourage you, jump in. We want you to be involved. There is no cap. There is no ceiling on the number of people that we want to be deeply involved in the ministry of this church. And so if it, anything that we've ever done uh, demonstrates that we don't desire that, it was, it was wrong on our part, right? We, we want you to be involved in the ministry of the church. If you are serving, if you have jumped into a small group or a ministry team or whatever, how can you invite others in to join you on the team? How can you invite somebody to come serve alongside of you? How can you invite somebody to, to come to small group with you? How can you invite somebody into a discipling relationship? Maybe you've got a really good discipling relationship with one other person and you're really loving it and you're really enjoying it, but but you need to ask each other, hey, how can we invite somebody else into this? We're getting so much out of this. How can we invite somebody else in to get, get it so that they can, they can enjoy the fruits of this as well? And lastly, if you're, if you're a leader, if you're leading a group, if you're leading a ministry, if you're leading a, a, a discipleship team, uh, how do you pass that leadership on to somebody else? How do you make sure that if God calls you to go and plant a church or God calls you uh, to, to move because of your job or, or God calls you for a season to do something different, how can you know that the ministry that you're involved with will be even stronger because of the investment that you made with the people with you? So I want to challenge you that way to think uh, that, that that's one of the ways that we grow as a church by beginning to think more about we than me. The second way that we, we grow, and I think this is even infinitely more powerful is this idea of, of struggling in prayer. Look what he says about Epaphras. This is such high praise. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. We know Epaphras was a hard worker. He was a church planner. He was a pastor. He, he, he traveled and he, and he did things, but his most powerful struggle took place in prayer. Could you say that about yourself? That the most powerful work of ministry that you do is in prayer? That you struggle harder in prayer than you struggle anywhere else? I really think this is the way forward for us as a church. I think that if we want to see God do things that we could never hope for or imagine in our church and in our community, the way forward is through an urgent heart of prayer, that we've got to struggle in prayer. And I'm preaching this to myself as much as anyone else. Can I, can I say my natural tendency is to do things? I'm a doer, right? So I want, to, I want to plan better, and I want to organize, and I want to spend time, and I want to invite, and I want to do all these things, and, we, and I have to do all these things, and that's good. But the most powerful struggle that I should be taking is the struggle of prayer on your behalf. 
And I want you to think, well, I preached about this several weeks ago, but when you pray for the people that you love and care about, how are you praying for them? Are you praying for comfort and health and, and, uh, and protection? Those are all good things, and we should pray that way. But look, what he's, look how he's praying for the people that he loves and cares about. He's praying that they would stand mature and they would have full assurance of the will of God, that they would know God and that they would mature and grow. And so think about it. There might be somebody you love who's going through a, a difficult time. They're, they're uncomfortable in, in whatever's going on in their life, and your prayer might be consistently, God, make them comfortable. God, make them comfortable. But, but maybe God made, made them uncomfortable because he wants to, to train them. He wants to teach them. He wants to grow them in that season. And so in, in a way, even though you're praying to God for that person, you're praying kind of counter to his will. I think God still honors your heart of prayer for them, right? I'm not saying that's, that's bad, but a better prayer is to be like, God, use whatever this is to mature them. Help them to know your will. Help them to have an assurance of their salvation so that they can move forward in confidence and do the good works that you've created them to do. Help them to see exactly what it is that you're calling them to so they can charge into it with all of their energy and their might. That's a good prayer, right? That's how we should be praying for each other. That's how we should be praying for the, the church. I would love it for you to pray for me that way. I invite you. I ask you to pray for me. And think about how encouraging if somebody came up to you and said, hey, I've been praying for you this week, and I've just been praying that God would just use what you're going through right now to mature you and to strengthen you and to help you to know him so well and to know his will in your life. Man, what an encouragement that would be. Has anybody had somebody come up and say that to him today yet? All right, we've got our work cut out, right? That's how we want to be encouraging one another in this church. Husbands, pray that for your wives. Wives, pray that for your husbands. Pray that for your kids, right? That's an encouraging and powerful prayer that works on anybody in any situation. Are you struggling in prayer for God's church and for the people that you love? So the unity and diversity, are, you, are, are we embracing the diversity of rules that we've been given? Are we struggling in prayer? And third, are we keeping perspective? He talks about those that are his fellow prisoners. And I had mentioned already that, that Paul understood the cost of his ministry. Shortly after writing this letter, he is going to be executed for his faith in Jesus. He's in shackles for proclaiming the gospel. And yet he writes this incredibly hopeful, uplifting letter that says, set your minds on things that are above where Christ your life is. Don't worry about the things of this world. And he writes this with his chains on his hands. He understood the cost. And many of the people that were listed in that letter would also end up giving their lives for what they believed. That they had an incredible perspective. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's the greater perspective that lets you write a letter of joy while you're chained in prison. In his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the perspective we need to live with. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever the struggles and difficulties that, it, that you're facing, that the deepest reality is that if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, if you are following after him, if you've received the free gift of salvation that he is offering to you, then your hope is 
is in the future and whatever you're going through will look like a light and momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory that will be placed upon you when you go and stand before him. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That sort of perspective can get you through the day, get you through the week, <laughs> get you through the month, right? That, that that's where we set our eyes above. And, and Paul understood this. He, he grasped this. And so I would ask you today, uh, do, are the things of this world making you so comfortable that you've lost focus on Jesus? Do you have everything kind of dialed into the place where you like it in such a way that, that you're not really striving to follow the kingdom? And on the flip side, are you, are you so uncomfortable to the things of this world have you so uncomfortable that you've lost sight of the kingdom? You're just you're trying to get to a place of comfort. And I would encourage you in either place that the thing that we need to do is to set our eyes upon Jesus, to believe the greater hope and reality. And the world's not going to tell us this. You're not going to get this watching TV or, or watching movies or reading books or on Facebook. You're going to get this in, in God's Word, in the Bible. That's where you're going to see this truth. That's where the mirror is going to reflect clearly about who we really are. So as we conclude, I want, to, I want to do what we've been trying to do this whole series in Colossians, which is to set our eyes above, to look up to where Christ is. Look at how Christ modeled these things. Jesus built an incredibly diverse team. He had fishermen. He had tax collectors. He had revolutionaries. He had prostitutes. He had Pharisees. He's got school teachers. He's got business owners. He's got blue-collar workers. He's got white-collar workers. He's got stay-at-home moms. He's got bankers, he's got doctors, he's got all of us are a part of the team that Jesus has been building. And when we embrace the role that he's given us, he doesn't want you to do what that, that person did 100 years ago or that person who lives down the road or that person who's sitting in the aisle with you. He wants you to do what he's prepared you to do in the place where he sat you, in the place where he's positioned you with the skills and the talents and abilities that he's given to you. And he wants you to fulfill everything that he's called you to do on the team in your position. Jesus invites you, and, and the ministry that he created long outlived his death and resurrection on the cross, right? The ministry that he did is still going today. We are his hands and feet. We are the ministers of Christ. We are carrying forward his work and his mission today because he embraced the, the diversity and the unity of building a team. But we're more than a team, we're a family, right? That he didn't just invite us onto the team, he didn't hire us, he didn't take us on as a servant, he adopted us, sons and daughters of the king. That Jesus struggled constantly in prayer. That he was always going off and seeking a quiet place alone to pray to the Father, to seek out his will, and then going in and ministering to people. In the garden he bled drops of blood in anguish. That he struggled in prayer. And he didn't just pray for, for his self and, and the mission that was laid out before him. Remember, he prayed for Peter. He says, he says that the enemy has asked that he could sift you like wheat, but I've prayed that you would be strengthened. He prayed for us in his great high priestly prayer. He even prayed for those that were persecuting them. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That, that he prayed in love for others, that they would stand mature and that they would know the will of the Father. And so in following his example, we're called to pray in that same way. And Jesus always kept perspective on the true reward. He resisted efforts to make him an earthly king. He resisted efforts uh, to take a shortcut uh, to get the things that he desired. He took the path all the way to the cross. Jesus was a prisoner. He was beaten. He was executed. Paul says, remember my chains. 
Jesus says, remember the cross. He took the, this implement of torture, this, this implement of death, and he turned it into the greatest symbol of hope and love that the world has ever seen. And so our call today is to gain that perspective, to remember the cross and allow it to drive us forward in prayerful unity. Let's pray.